You're listening to audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work, according to his good purpose. Do nothing, do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I am I'm Chad, one of the pastors with King's Cross Church. And I'm so happy to be here with you today. I'm so grateful to be um, in God's Word together. It's been encouraging to me, and this is now our fourth week. Um, if you have the opportunity, if you haven't met me uh, or Aaron, please visit with us here in the back table. Uh, we would love to introduce ourselves and get to know you. I'm feeling some feedback. So, um, so, so we're in Philippians here in the fourth week as Nate just read for us in Philippians chapter 2 there you go and uh, we're working through uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church um, it's, um, it's an encouraging letter it's written to friends Paul is an apostle who helped plant Philippian church he loves the Philippians and it's evident through the way he talks to them and last week, if you were with us, uh, we had the opportunity to go through the, the passage leading up to this Christ hymn and talked a little bit about the Christ hymn. And this week, we are also including this in the beginning because Paul is doing a little back there and then going forward with this passage. And not to mention it's such an incredibly rich passage that why would we not want to talk about it twice, right? So let's look at it together and let's see uh, where Paul has come from and where he's going. Uh, the Philippian church is an encouraging church to Paul, but Paul also has encouragement for them. Uh, he has encouragement for them. He's, he's in prison. Uh, they've, sent, um, they've sent Epaphroditus to him. We're going to read more about him even next week. And, and, and he has been an encouragement to, to Paul, but he's coming back with a message because one of the things Paul has seen or heard about the Philippian church is that they're struggling with unity, with disunity in the body. There's some, some strife disagreements. And so Paul then turns in a loving and encouraging way last week and talks about how they walk with gospel humility, how they love one another, encourage one another, live as a body of incredibly different people. If you are honest and you're a believer and you're in the midst of this church or any church you've been in, there's probably very little other things for some people that would have brought you together other than Christ. You don't have things in common with them. You don't come from the same backgrounds. Most often in this world, we tend towards people that are a lot like us. 
Many of you are probably sitting there thinking, I'm not a lot like Chad. He is much different than a lot of me. Yeah, I am. I know I'm unique. Not to mention, uh, in my own flesh, to be honest with you, I don't like groups of people to be around a lot of people at once. I love you guys. Don't get me wrong. That is honest and sincere, but it tires me out. Like the idea of going to the state fair on a Saturday just gives me like a panic attack. <laughs> really? <laughs> but Christ brings us together. And Paul's encouragement last week, his walk in that unity that Christ has established, that God has brought you together in Christ, and then demonstrate a kind of humility, putting others first, that puts on display the unity that God's working in you. Live in that unity. And so it's, we talked about a really difficult, tough passage, right? It's hard to think first of others over yourself, to do nothing out of selfish ambition. I mean, I don't want to get mine sometimes. That's kind of the, that's the flesh. But he talks about unity and then in humility, and he points then the Philippian church to Christ. Have this mind in you that's also in Christ. And that's what Nate just read. That's where the beginning of our passage is. But as he does, and we talked about last week, we look back, we said that Paul goes through first the foundations for humility. God is first working in you to unite you in Christ. Second, the expression of humility. What does it look like for you to live humbly with one another? And then third, the embodiment. That's when he points to Christ. What does it look like in the flesh? Look at Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death. And then this week, we want to take a turn, pivoting on that passage, and we want to first start about the embodiment of obedience. Christ, how did he embody obedience? Third, we want to talk about the expression of obedience. What does it look like for us to walk in that obedience? And then third and finally, where Paul ends, what is the purpose of our obedience? Why does it even matter? Is God doing something? What's he trying to do? Last week, we ended by looking at Christ. This week, we're going to begin by looking at Christ. Hopefully, that's a theme here. See, the embodiment of obedience in Christ, we want to start. Last week we said Christian unity flourishes where gospel humility is cultivated. This week I want us to pay attention to the fact that Paul is demonstrating true humility is when we recognize the one true Lord, trust him, and obey him. True hum humility, to walk in humility, is to recognize the one true Lord, trust him, and obey him. So let's read, uh, look at this passage. Before we get started, uh, I want to pray for us that the Spirit would be with us and would lead us and guide us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the time you've given us this morning. God, I pray that you would uh, teach us, open our eyes to see what we have not seen. Lord, change us, give us discernment to hear your voice and to trust you and obey. And follow, Father, fill us, fill us with your spirit so that as we hear your word, as we seek to obey you, that you will empower us to go out from this place, change to be more like Christ. And we do ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So first and foremost, we want to look at the embodiment of obe obedience, Christ. What does it look like in obedience? Well, in verses 5 through 6, we read this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing uh, with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Paul is pointing in the beginning of this to humility of Christ, his servant-mindedness. That's what that means, to have a mind like a servant, actually like a slave, technically, in the Greek. This is not admirable among the Greeks to think yourself lowlier than everybody else, but Paul is holding it up as a Christian virtue. And he says, look at Christ. He had a servant mind that he served us and didn't think, I'm God, I have my rights, I have my privilege, I'm going to stay up on my throne on high. You guys have really messed up in your sin. Sorry for you. Instead, he emptied himself of his privilege. In his divinity, he didn't have to take on flesh. He didn't have pain. He didn't have sorrow. All of those things that we struggle with because of a sin-fallen world. But Paul points out that God, Christ did not take his divinity 
as something to be taken advantage of, but rather emptied himself into humanity. It wasn't that he lost his divinity, but he took on something new. Specifically says that. He emptied himself by what? Taking the form of a servant. He added to his divinity his humanity. And he did that in serving us. He was willing to give up his rights. He was willing to submit himself to the limitations of flesh and blood and humanity. And this is really, by the way, controversial in a lot of religions. The fact that Christ, that, that Christ would be God and God would submit himself in such a lowly way, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But that's what Paul says that Christ did for us. And, and look, this is an imperfect illustration, by the way. But, but it's God in himself lowering himself to meet us where we are. I really enjoy wrestling with my kids. I don't go full force. Okay, listen, I could crush my four-year-old. Well, she's going to be four soon on Halloween. I could crush her, let me tell you. She thinks she can handle me. I don't think so. Jeremiah, he wants to, he wants to wrestle? I'm like, okay, buddy. Good luck. I could put him in the emergency room, and I'm not bragging about that. I'm just a bigger dude. They're little kids. But we still wrestle and have fun. Even occasionally, Jeremiah would be like, squeeze me as hard as you can. Are you squeezing me as hard as you can? Yeah, yeah, buddy. I, sure, I, I, yeah, yeah, I'm squeezing you as hard as you can. Now I would break his ribs. I can feel it. But I lower my strength, my power, to take the form of a wrestling kid, maybe? Is that not even close? Man, it's not perfect. But really, God humbled himself to meet us where we were. Christ took his divinity. I'm not giving up my strength. Am I? As I age, maybe, but not in the moment. But I'm consciously submitting myself to be on my son's level. Christ took on the limitations of humanity for us. And first, he emptied himself of his rights, his privileges. Our rights and our privileges can often provide us comfort, can't they? We think not just in the physical, but in the way, in the places that we've been born, the things that we have. Christ had divinity. He is God. And he emptied himself. How much more then should we be conscious to set aside our privilege, our right, our opportunity for the sake of others? How much more then should we be willing to acknowledge when sometimes our rights and privilege avoid, give us the opportunity to separate ourselves from others who we need to serve? So first, Christ emptied himself of his rights and privileges as divinity to take on humanity. humanity. And then we see this, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself. And I don't want you to miss this important thing. Christ did not humble himself until he actually became a man. Humility is a characteristic of the creature, not the creator. In this context, it's a posture and a spirit before the one who actually holds ultimate authority. And, and, and here's how we can see that humility and obedience tied together. The first, one of the first instances of this showing up in Scripture is actually in uh, the case of Pharaoh in the Ten uh, in the Ten Commandments, I'm thinking of Ten Commandments, the plague, I'm thinking about Charleston Heston here, um, so, right? The plagues in Egypt, right? Okay, and maybe you're familiar with this story, maybe you're not. So Pharaoh has absolutely hardened himself up against God. He's saying no, God says, let my people go. He says, I'm not going to. He's like, great, I'm going to send frogs. Okay, I'm going to send locusts. I'm going to send uh, darkness. It ends up with killing the firstborn son, every firstborn son in, in the kingdom. But the whole time, Pharaoh is hard in his heart, absolutely not, absolutely not, absolutely not. It's pride. I'm not submitting to you. And in Exodus 10:3, Moses and Aaron comes to Pharaoh, and they say this. This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may worship me. Humility that Christ demonstrates is tied directly to obedience. Pharaoh was not acknowledging God's power and authority. And ultimately, humility is seeing rightly who God is, which Pharaoh failed to do. And to recognize who you are before God. 
Is God humble? Okay. Technically, I'm going to say no. But it's not because he's prideful or arrogant. It's because he's God. He is God. John Piper actually puts it this way. He describes the essence of humility as to feel and think and say and act in a way that shows I am not God. Pride brought about the fall of man because Adam and Eve desired to be like God. Humility is to be like Christ. He demonstrates that in that when he became a man, he humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death. His humility led to what? Obedience. Even to death on a cross. And that is ultimately the lowest form of torture and death. That he would be humiliated and killed violently. He set out on display. That's the reason Paul points that out. It's not a good way to go. You wonder why we, we came the name King's Cross? We serve Christ who is King who took on willingly the cross on our behalf. And that's why we serve him. That's why we love him. That's why we follow him. Because he's the one that willingly humbled himself in obedience. How is it that he did humble himself? He obeyed. In his divinity, Christ had every right and privilege of glory and honor. He was God. And as a man, Jesus embodies humility in his obedience to the will of God. Although he was the son, Hebrews 5, 8-9 tells us, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father no matter what it cost him. By the way, sometimes obedience has the cost. It cost Jesus his life. And he knew it. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, we point to this regularly. He came in the garden to pray before the crucifixion, and he said to the Father, If you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He willingly submitted himself to the cross. Second thing we see in this passage starts in verse 7. Even as Christ has been as he's humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, God has now exalted him. For this reason, God highly exalted him. I'm sorry, it starts in verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In Christ's humility and obedience, God exalted him. He didn't leave him there. In the end, all people will recognize that Christ is Lord. In the end. Whether it be now or later, but by the judgment seat, God has exalted Christ and he is Lord. And it says every knee will bow. Our lost friends and family, guys, are going to find out whether we tell them or not. God is offering grace and forgiveness in Christ, and we want all people to meet Jesus and serve him as their king. Because either way, they're going to meet him as their Lord and judge. Out of this passage is where Paul then goes on to take Christ who has been exalted and move to talk explicitly to the Philippians about obedience. We obey this king, this God, this Lord, the one who's Lord over all because God has highly exalted him. So what does the expression of obedience look like for us, starting in verse 12? Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. There's two ways. There's ways we walk in obedience, and it looks broadly like this, especially out of this passage, to walk humbly with God and to walk humbly with others. That's how we obey. Christ humbled himself to the point of what? Obedience. So we humble ourselves before God, and we humble ourselves with others. Now, there's a passage here at the beginning, which is really, really important for us to consider context. 
uh, we haven't talked, we have talked a little bit about this throughout this um, last three weeks, but actually Philippians is loaded with a lot of like life verse, coffee cup type verses. Uh, maybe you're familiar with what I'm talking about. Inspirational quotes you'll find that people will have on a mug or on a photo or a picture or something. Maybe they'll slap it up on their Instagram. It's okay. I'm not dogging that. I just want to lean into the fact that we need to know the context to really take hold of all that God is doing and saying, all that Paul is trying to communicate. And in this particular case, it's not to the positive, but there's a verse here <clears throat> that actually is, usually has a negative reaction. I don't know if you guys have heard this. I feel it's important to clarify because I've had it requested before. I've heard, like, what does this mean? Can you lose your salvation? What is, God, what is Paul saying? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Make sure you're saved. Make sure you're steady. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say no. That's not what that means. That's not what that means, and, and, and there's a reason that I would say that. First, without, throughout all of Scripture, it doesn't make sense with the context of all of Scripture. It's not consistent. That you need to, like, steady, make yourself, okay, oh, maybe God give me salvation, maybe he didn't. Maybe, no, he says, those who are in Christ, there's no longer condemnation. We are saved. We are his. And those that God gives to Christ, nobody can take away. Not even you. So it doesn't fit the context of all of Scripture. It doesn't fit the context of the letter. Paul has expressed his confidence in the first part of this entire letter where he said that, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He believes he's talking to his faith family. So he's not saying, he's not encouraging them, God loves you, you're great, be humble with one another, look at Christ, look how great he is, by the way, make sure you're saved. That doesn't make any sense. And the third thing, it doesn't make sense in this very specific passage. Because he says right after this, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you. God does not work in people that aren't his. So we can have confidence as we look at this. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. Instead, rather, let's look at this passage and see that Paul actually ties this directly to obedience. Because he starts this way, therefore, my dear friends, therefore, my beloved, therefore, beloved. This is the language he's using. That's actually, he's, he's agape, that's a Greek term for word, it's in that. He's, he likes to make these conjunction mashups. He's saying, my loved ones, just as you have always obeyed, just as you have always obeyed, even when I was there, but even more now in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He ties it to obedience. Not producing your own salvation, but rather to work out your salvation. Work it outwardly, walking worthy of the gospel. That was two, two, two uh, weeks ago. That's the theme. That could, we could even say 127 is thematic for the entire letter. What does it look like to walk worthy of the gospel? So now, Philippians, just as you have obeyed from the beginning, when I was there, continue to do so when I'm absent, work out your salvation. Walk worthy of the gospel with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Do we walk before God scared? Are we nervous? Are we concerned? Actually, no. This has a, there's, the word here is used in the negative connotation, but also a positive connotation. The connection here is reverence, respect, honor. If you know rightly who God is, you, as the Old Testament says, the beginning of wisdom is to fear him. Not because he's unpredictable, because he is all-powerful, and we are creatures before him who are not deserving of his grace and kindness, yet he gives it abundantly. It's tied to the Old Testament concept of piety, reverence, thinking rightly about God and who you are before him. You know, our greatest issue is not simply thinking too highly of ourselves, but it's actually thinking too little of God. So Paul's encouraging the Philippians, walk out your faith with fear and trembling, reverence before the almighty God. And then the second part of this we don't want to miss. 
work outwardly. He uses it on purpose. Work out your salvation because God is working in you. He is the source of your power. The energy in which instills and fills and enables you to work, walk outwardly the gospel. Paul says both. This God who was in the first part of my letter, the one who raised Christ from the dead and is exalted on high, he's at work in you. So work out your salvation. Be bold. There's, there's two ways this can play out, by the way. Wrongly. We can be arrogant in the way we try to work out our salvation and just not consider and think about who God is and how highly he should be exalted. That's why he's encouraging fear and trembling. But for those in here who are maybe just think too lowly of yourself, there's a way. Both of these, by the way, are a problem. You're thinking too much about yourself. And I say that as gently as I can. I understand self-esteem, low self-esteem, concern, maybe even feeling there's no way God could ever use me. I am so broken. I am so feeble. That's, that's the excuse Moses was given from the beginning. I can't talk right. I can't do things right. Do you know who I am, God? He freed his people through Moses. So, so I want you to hear this. If that's you, don't don't be so timid about your obedience and don't believe for a moment that God doesn't have enough grace for you. Because the almighty king of glory works in you. For what? His purposes. Be bold and ambitious in your obedience because God's at work in you. The second thing we're talking about here is also walking humbly with others. So we walk humbly before God, but we also need to walk humbly with others. Paul continues on, almost seems a little jilted, a little stilted in the conversation in verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless and a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars. You know, grumbling and complaining can be aimed at God directly. Quite often, I don't know about you, but I find I aim it at other people. I, I, I could find things to complain about. Confession, I, 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 will, I will honest, I know I have a critical spirit in the sense that I know that I need to fight that and be acknowledging that I could find fault in a circumstance, in a situation. I know that God's at work in me, though. And so I seek to be obedient in that, to recognize that I should do all things without grumbling and complaining. But maybe you're thinking there has to be an okay time to complain, right? I mean, I find that. I want to justify it. I, 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 listen, on the surface, the English suggests there's not. It says do everything without grumbling and complaining. So I wanted to dig deeper. I went into the Greek, the word Panta, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, okay? The root of that is pos, okay? So is there a circumstance in which we can grumble and complain? Well, actually, the term in its sense, in the way that it's translated throughout its usage, means entire, every, each, all, continually, every single. In my best Chris Traeger, Paul literally means everything. I went to a small military school for my undergrad. Uh, they had a very strict honor code. Actually, you get kicked out, lie, cheat, steal, you're gone. Okay? Whenever you got written up for something, you had to answer what was called a special report. And I learned very quickly, if you answered a special report, you could get an honor court violation or get in trouble if you did something called quibbling. Okay? That also means equivocating, Shading on the truth, saying, well, I was there, but was I really there? Or That's called quibbling. It's tempting here to think that Paul must have an exception in mind, but he gives no room for quibbling. He says, do everything. And don't forget, he is writing from prison 
to churches who faced the threat of a very real physical persecution. When he was in Philippi, he was beaten and thrown in jail. And he says, do everything without grumbling and complaining. I struggle with complaining if my Amazon Prime shipment is delayed. Just saying. Are you serious? Right now? Two-day shipping. Why is it that hard? There's actually a joke in my family, a running, a running joke, uh, about my orders whenever we go through like a drive-thru or something. I've got four kids. So I get it. It's a complicated order. For some reason, we still do like special orders, and you want lettuce and cheese, and you want. 90% of the time, they get an order wrong. 89.9% of the time, it's mine. <laughs> Dead serious every time. Once we got Chick fil A. Chick fil A. How does Chick fil A? Chick fil A does not get orders wrong. Yeah, I assumed. We picked it up and went to a park nearby. I can have a nice picnic lunch. I mean, 15, 20 minutes away, maybe, something like that. Uh, and my sandwich wasn't there at all. I don't even think my fries were there. I was sitting there with like a sweet tea, like, that good? That looks good. <laughs> I'm good. I've sacrificed for you. If you want to give me half, though, that'd be fine. I struggle with complaining over the silliest little things. But you know what? I, I honestly, I struggle the most when my heart is set on something. And then I don't get it. Or it doesn't work out the way I want. I, I used to know, I know this about myself. Because you know what I used to do? I used to just not make plans on purpose. It was laid back. No, no, because if it, my plans got screwed up, I was upset. So I might as well not make them. Just let everybody else do it. It's your plans. We'll just go along. James actually points this out in chapter 4 of his letter where he says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You're, you desire and you do not have. I know that's an issue for me. Someone or something is standing between you and your plan for your life. And they get your rage. They must be sacrificed. The truth is, though, we ultimately don't make our plans. That's in the Lord's hands. Proverbs 16.9, the proverb tells us, A person's heart plans his ways, but the Lord determines his steps. God, we gotta, we gotta, we got to embrace that. When we grumble and we complain, we are failing to trust in the Lord who guides our steps. Pastor and theologian Charles Spurgeon is quoted as saying this, we cannot always trace God's hand, but we can always trust God's heart. We can trust that God always has a purpose. I actually have a a friend and a pastor who's in Apex, Forrest Moss, who gave me some encouragement along these very <clears throat> specific lines, uh, and I'm going to quote him so we can tell him later that I quoted him. Um, when he said that in the circumstances where there's something not going the way you wanted or planned, either, quoting him, either this is something God really wants for your life right now, and these people or this situation is just foiling God's plan. Or, God is sovereign and there's something he wants to teach you. I don't always want to hear that, but it's true. I've often found that God teaches me the most in the waiting. When things aren't going the way I want them to or when I've experienced some loss or some pain. In this particular passage, Paul actually... Um, while we can read on the surface that he's talking about them shining as lights, as being without blemish in a crooked and um, twisted generation, we could, we could really boldly look at that as the world around us, which would be true that all those opposed to God are crooked and twisted, perverted generation. We could say that, but Paul undoubtedly also has in mind the Israelites. And the reason I would say that is because when 
Moses was giving his farewell address in Deuteronomy, he was speaking to the Israelites, and he had some frustrating times with them. If you ever want to go back and hear grumbling and complaining, don't look at it as an opportunity to feel better about yourself, because it could be tempting. But at the same time, to remember you're more like them than you want to admit. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses gives his farewell address by saying this, For I will proclaim the Lord's name, declare the greatness of our God, the rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are just, a faithful God without bias, he is righteous and true. Sound familiar to Paul talking about how great and true and righteous God is? Then he says this, his people have acted corruptly toward him. This is their defect or blemish, often translated. They are not his children, but a devious and crooked generation. Is this how you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Isn't he your father and creator? Didn't he make you and sustain you? If you're familiar with the story, Israel complained and didn't, failed to trust God to the point that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. He was both teaching them something and disciplining them. A whole generation passed. It was not 40 years travel from where they were heading out of Egypt to the promised land. And Moses, in one of the most motivational speeches, like, you crazy, crooked people. Why? Isn't he your father and creator? Didn't he make you and sustain you? He goes on this whole passage about, remember, talk to your, the older generation, how he delivered us out of Egypt. Why do you still not trust him? And so I say, Paul, without a doubt, had this in mind, because he was a student of the word, and he knew this story. And when he talks to Philippians, he reminds them of what great things God has done in Christ, that he would love you, show you grace, show you mercy and kindness. Israel here, Moses is doing the same thing, and he tells them, you're, you're just not trusting him. Paul says, trust God, humble yourself, and be obedient. Israel was not walking humbly with God. They were grumbling and complaining about God leading them out to die. Israel was not walking humbly with others. They were grumbling and complaining about Moses' leadership. That's not humility, guys. That's pride. It's not trusting God in your circumstance. The righteous have always walked by faith. Even when we hear about Abraham in the Old Testament, it says that he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. His faith was his righteousness. So when Paul says here that you will be blameless and pure, he's not saying morally you're just going to get it perfect. He's saying your righteousness is your faith, that you trust God and obey him. And I say that, too, because it's not, it's not clear here. He's not going to be saying, hey, by the way, be obedient, trust God, be humble, uh, but your righteousness is not your own. It's Christ. That's true, too. We have an outside righteousness that makes us right before God, but he's also talking about a moral uprightness, a childlike faith that just trusts in God and obeys him. Trust and obey. There's no other way. To be happy in Jesus. Good song. So Paul is encouraging the Philippians to be what the Israelites were not in trusting God and obeying him and following him. And this applies to us. It's no matter who, it's no matter what. We should be doing everything without grumbling and complaining. Maybe there's an excuse you want to find. Maybe the government, right? They got a lot to complain of, that make us complain about now, right? I mean, there's a lot of things people have found, including us in the church, to complain about over the last, what, over a year now especially, but throughout history. Well, Romans tells us, let everyone submit to the governing authority since there's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. Trust God and don't grumble and complain. How about, how about your parents? They're worth complaining about, right? I know my kids complain about me when I'm not around. Ephesians 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, 
use this next line judiciously. Don't try to hang it over their head. But Paul says that it may go well with you and you may have a long life in the land. Living a long time is tied directly to honoring your parents. What about your spouse? Maybe God just doesn't know. Paul doesn't know my wife. She's amazing, by the way. This is not about you. You're great. But he doesn't know how hard it is in my home. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. All relationships are tied to him. What about your children? Children can be frustrating if you have any. There's no way I should not grumble and complain about them. We were grumbling and complaining this morning about them. Just being honest. Children, you know what scripture says? Children are a blessing. And it also tells us that every good thing comes from the Lord. So we should bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What, what about my employer? He is just ugh, over, overbearing. This is ridiculous. My professor, not disrespecting me. They don't, they don't give me a fair shot. Obey your human masters, those who have authority over you, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. That's Ephesians 6. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord. What about my enemies? What about my enemies? Those who are opposing me outrightly. There are people maybe that are just trying to put you down. They have it out for you. There's nothing you could do that would ever please them. Our Savior, Jesus said in Matthew, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's like God our Father, that he would love his enemies. In any and all circumstance, do everything without grumbling and complaining. Trust in God. Obey him because he has a purpose in your obedience. And so the third thing we're going to look at, what is the purpose of obedience? 15, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So his purpose in this is twofold. First is to sanctify us, to set us apart, to make us more like Christ. And second, to glorify God. To sanctify us for the glory of God so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. That challenge, that difficulty, that thing that tempts you to grumble and to complain, those things, situations you find yourself in, those trials, those temptations, God says they're all brought about, and in them I am working out my glory in you to make you more like Christ. Author A.W. Tozer included in his book, The Root of Righteousness, in his book, he draws a picture that helps us to see the sense in this hard-hitting proposition. He says this, The flaming desire to be rid of every unholy thing and to put on the likeness of Christ at any cost is not often found among us. We expect to enter the everlasting kingdom of our Father and to sit down around the table with sages, saints, and martyrs, and through the grace of God, maybe we shall. Yes, maybe we shall. But for the most of us, it could prove at first an embarrassing experience. Ours might be the silence of the untried soldier in the presence of the battle-hardened heroes who have fought the fight and won the victory and who have scars to prove that they were present when the battle was joined. He continues by saying that it is necessary for God to use suffering in his holy work of preparing his saints. Adding this, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. God has chosen, even in the trying times, to make us more like Jesus. We have to trust him. The same is said in Scripture in James chapter 1, where we're told, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, 
lacking nothing. Our trials, our challenges, those situations that tempt us to, to complain and grumble, they are all to make us more like Christ. Blameless and pure before God, walking fully trusting in him. Israel failed to trust God. Israel failed to trust God when he wanted to lead them into the promised land. And Paul is encouraging the Philippians, trust God and obey him. Don't grumble and complain. And all of this is for the glory of God, where he says, among whom you shine like stars. When we shine like lights in the world, we put God on display. He has made us in his image. We glorify him with our obedience. Shining like stars in our humble obedience is countercultural, by the way. We want to promote ourselves, put us ourselves on display, but in fact, we put Christ on display when we humble ourselves in obedience to him. Others see our life and our trust in the Father, and we glorify God in our obedience to him. If we follow these ways, if we look at this and we say all of our faults, our failures, our, our difficulties, our challenges, if we see them as glorifying God and making us more like Christ, we can, with Paul following his example, boast in God's glory and also be willing to sacrifice everything. So look at the back half of this. The final two verses. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. Paul's not boasting what in himself. He's boasting in the Lord. He's not boasting in anything he's done. He's boasting in what God is doing in the Philippians. Paul's life is for God's glory. He says to live is Christ. To die would be gain. And so here he says, if you run this race, if you walk blameless and pure, I can boast in the day of Christ that my labor wasn't for vain, but it was for Christ working in you. Are you able to boast in the way God is working in others? Like Paul, how is pride causing you to focus on your glory over God's glory? Do we find it tempting to not be like Paul, to be able to boast in others in the way that God works? And the second thing he's willing to do is sacrifice for God's glory. He says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul could rejoice no matter what it cost him. He's already said that earlier. He's willing to die. Die would be gain. His willingness to sacrifice was even humble. Please don't miss that. Paul's demonstrating in his language here that he's even being humble here because he calls himself a drink offering. That was secondary to the primary offering. The drink offering required that there was an offering burnt and made before God, and the drink offering was then poured on top of it as a follow-up. Paul said, even if my life, if I am poured out as a drink offering on what? The sacrifice, sacrificial service of your faith. His primary objective was their faith would grow. That their sacrificial service made his sacrifice possible. That they gave to him while he was in prison. They met his need. They supplied and supported his ministry. The Philippian sacrificial service made his sacrifice possible. Look, when we recognize the one true Lord, trust him and obey him, we can work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because we know that God is a work in us. Walk humbly with others. Confess your sin to one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Repent with one another. Walk humbly together before God. We can do everything without grumbling or complaining when we know that God's at work in us. Even if God leads you into places you don't want to go, he might change your plans. There's some of you here he's sending to the mission field. There's some of you he's going to plant a new church. There's some of you in here that are going to lead those causes, and God's going to change your plans for your life. Embrace that and obey him. Even if he leads you down a path that might disappoint others' expectations. I mean, I wasn't growing up and people saying hey, he's going to pastor and plant a church. But others' expectations aren't God's plan for your life. That's not where he's leading. You might face ridicule. You might have to sacrifice everything. But we can do all those things without grumbling and complaining. Christ was obedient to the point of death. Paul could rejoice in his own death. This entire structure, and I'm going to close here. I want to point out this. This entire structure is set up as a chiasm. Okay? It's very loosely formed that way, and I want to explain what that means. In the Bible, there's a, a structure that goes 
A, B, C, C, B, A. If you notice my notes from last week were a flipped mirrored image of my notes this week. Talking about humility, the foundation of humility, the why, the expression of humility, the how, the embodiment of humility, the who. Now we talked about this week, the embodiment of obedience, the who, the expression of obedience, the how, and the purpose of obedience, the why. And what I don't want you to miss is this. Every bit of it is centered on the person and work of Christ. When Paul knew his friends were struggling with disunity, he pointed them to Christ. When Moses was in the wilderness, he said, don't you remember how God delivered you? Every time God did great things for his people in the Old Testament, he commanded them to raise a monument so they could always remember, remember the faithfulness of their God. Like Israel, we're quick to forget. We forget the faithfulness and love of God. But we don't have physical monuments to look at. What we have is even better. We have Christ. All of God's promises find their yes in Christ. Unbeliever, if you're here with us today, if you're exploring Christianity, or maybe you have no interest because you, you know too many hypocritical, self-identified Christians, don't look at us. Look at Christ. Hebrews 1 tells us long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. God has shown us his love for us, how that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave up all these things for us, how he will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can separate us from that love? The love of Christ. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, as we are confident in these things, know that we can place our trust in Christ Jesus our Lord. And work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is the one who's at work in you for his good purpose. If you've never trusted in Christ, he invites you today. This world is full of brokenness, and apart from God, everyone is looking for the fix. Money, power, relationships, sex, none of these things satisfy. You were made to know the creator. You were made to know God. Maybe you think he'd never accept you, that you're too broken, too guilty, too shamed. Christ came and gave his life for all of your sin, guilt, and shame. There is nothing you've done, nothing you are that Christ can't cover. Repent, turn to Christ, trust in him as the one true Lord. He stands ready to welcome you into the kingdom with a warm embrace. And nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus.